0: This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Today, we are joined by Dr. Norm Ornstein. He's a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's been studying politics, elections, and Congress for more than four decades. He previously served as co-director of the AEI Brookings Election Reform Project. His books include the New York Times and Washington Post bestsellers, One Nation After Trump and it's even worse than it looks. I hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Norm Orenstein. Dr. Orenstein, thank you so much for joining us. I actually want to begin with a 2016 article that I've gone back to many times. And it says, Norm Orenstein on why the Republican Party was ripe for takeover what the media missed, and whether Trump could win the presidency. We know the last part of this. We know the answer. Trump did, in fact, win the presidency. He might win it again. But I actually would like to dive into our conversation by starting with the first part, which is, why was the Republican Party ripe for takeover?
1: Well, this has been going on for a very long time, and it's, in effect, the dissent of a political party which was a classic, traditional, responsible, problem-solving party, center-right, that began to move further to the right. And then what happened, I would argue, is that a lot of the strains that had been there for a long time before, and you know, we could go deep into the history, Jessica, and please call me Norm, that... You know, goes back to the struggles with authoritarians in the 1920s and 1930s, with the attempt by Robert Taft, uh, the Main Street Republican populist right element of the party, trying to take over and being beaten back uh, by Wendell Willkie um, and others, to the success, Pyrrhic as it was, by Barry Goldwater. But Newt Gingrich changed things when he came in in the 1978 election and really began to tribalize our politics. And then it was amplified by tribal media, then by social media. But Newt recruited a bunch of people who had no regard for norms or rules, who saw the means justifying the ends, who were coached to believe, and started with an impulse in any event, that government was evil, that Washington was evil. And Trump was basically the logical byproduct of that and the uh, accelerant of it but people were ripe and ready for it and the tribalism that is different from polarization it's not you know you're wrong your views are crazy but you're a good person and we do have problems we need to work together to solve and the system requires it to you're evil and trying to destroy our way of life and that of course metastasized to the states and to the public as a whole. And if you're tribal and you believe that the other side is evil, even if you are or should be put off by both the antics and the rhetoric and then the behavior of monsters, if they're part of your tribe and you criticize them or you go against them, you're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And all of this was coming. And you know, just to take it back a, a touch further, In 2015, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic uh, saying why this time could be different. And it was basically a critique of what had become the conventional wisdom, the political science wisdom, typified in a book called The Party Decides, that, yeah, they'll flirt with an outsider, but in the end, they go with the heir apparent. It's the elites that make the decisions. And I detailed why it was no longer the case. And I was subject to some ridicule by the authors of that uh, book, The Party Decides, and by others. Uh, But it was clear to me going back before that, as the Republican Party had been bastardized and captured by a malign group of people, attacked science and facts, uh, dismissed the opposition. We're willing to do anything to win, and we're perfectly happy to cripple government and destroy the system along the way if they could prevail. It was pretty clear to me that if it weren't Trump, some guy or person, a guy, <laughs> with the same fundamental views would emerge. Maybe not as awful as Donald Trump, but if Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, uh, I have little faith that any of the other pretenders to that throne. Would do anything except further our uh, descent into the abyss.
0: On that happy note, this is something I've wondered to myself, and I'm sure you have the answer, which is do you think the same thing could have happened to the Democratic Party? Was there, or could there be a moment where they could also be ripe for takeover from somebody who? doesn't, in my view, truly hold Democratic values, but says that they do? And is the kind of left analog or equivalent to a Trump or somebody like Trump? Or is there something different about the Republican Party that means, no, this couldn't happen to the Democratic
1: Party? That is a really good question. Let me start again with a little bit of history. Back uh, in uh, before 1936, We had begun to come out of the depression with Franklin Roosevelt, and then we began to sink back. And there was a lot of tumult, and tumult that was, of course, occurring globally. We saw what happened in Italy and Germany. Huey Long, if he had not been assassinated, you could make a case that he could have beaten FDR in a primary and gotten elected. maybe not been the equivalent of Donald Trump, but we would have had a, an authoritarian-style government under a presumed Democrat, large D. We escaped that. Now, if I look at the two parties today, I am highly skeptical that the Democrats are the opposite equivalent of the Republicans. And that's been true for some time, for one reason, uh, at least among others. Democrats have always been a coalition of different groups. They have to balance, juggle, and accommodate those groups. The Republicans have been a party of ideology that now makes them a cult of theology. It's much easier for somebody to take over under those circumstances, but it's also the case that Republicans moved far enough to the right that the authoritarian impulses were right there almost on the surface. And Democrats have moved a bit to the left, but nowhere near that far. They believe in institutions, and they tend to believe more in the rule of law. Could you end up with a demagogue? It's possible. I would say if uh, we keep seeing a Republican Party move further to the lunatic fringe, you have to worry about getting an opposite if not, but not equal reaction. I don't think you would find a Democrat who would run simply on the basis of retribution who would say flatly, yeah, I'd be a dictator. Even if you're saying it for only a day, no dictator is there for only a day. Would you have a Democrat who would say, I'm gonna invoke the Insurrection Act uh, when there are peaceful demonstrations? No, I don't think so. The parties are still different. You know, I often say there are no angels here. It's not like you have purity, but there's a stark difference between our parties. And I don't see that stark difference disappearing, even if it narrowed a bit.
0: I think it's really helpful to start the conversation by talking about the differences between the parties. And You've laid out something very clearly that I've observed, which is that the Republican Party seems to have moved very far to the right, where the Democrats have moved to the left, but not in the same way or to the same degree. And It does seem to me like there's an analogy there for what has happened on the Supreme Court, where there's no center in my view, and the members of the conservative wing are far more conservative than the members of the liberal wing are liberal. And before we leave talking about the judiciary, I know that you've written about some of the issues plaguing the Supreme Court, and you have advocated for a code of conduct for the court. The Supreme Court has come out recently with what they have said is a code of conduct. It in many ways mirrors the code that is mandatory and applies to every other federal judge in the nation, meaning all lower court judges, trial court and court of appeals. Um, Do you feel that that solves what is ailing the court?
1: No, not in the slightest. And of course, this code is a farce. It has no enforcement mechanism. It's basically written in a way that uh, skirts away from some of the language of the code of conduct that applies to other judges and in effect enables, in some ways it's worse than what we had because it kind of justifies what Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito have done and continue to do. It's a farce. The uh, court under John Roberts went this long without doing anything about the issues plaguing the court the ethical issues. We can get back to the ideological issues. But uh, I find that utterly embarrassing. And frankly, uh, it's hard to say that we can rely on our court, uh, the Supreme Court, or the court system more generally. And that includes, of course, state courts, which are even more distorted in many cases.
0: Before we leave the court and the court's decisions, I do, because I have you here, want to ask how much of what we see in that plagues our elections and our politics, how much do you think we can actually point back to 1976, Buckley versus Vallejo, decades later, Citizens United, the idea that unlike many other Western democracies, we put people on this endless fundraising wheel. You really can't win for office, or it's extremely difficult unless you are going to Individuals, to committees, to parties, to associations, and saying, I need money or you need to spend money on my behalf.
1: Is that
0: an overblown fear or can we point to that as one of the foundational problems that we face?
1: I think you're exactly right. It is a foundational problem. We had some boundaries in place, at least uh, after Buckley v. Vallejo, although they opened up a number of other possibilities, including, of course, basically giving a green light to individuals to contribute as much as they wanted to their own campaigns, which has resulted in a whole lot of very wealthy people running for office. They also opened up more of a door to independent expenditures, but those independent expenditures are supposed to be independent of candidates and campaigns, and that's a farce now. I think the reality is, and here uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse Along with the great uh, journalist Jane Mayer, have been on top of another of the great problems, which is the dark money, the huge sums of money going in to influence our elections and our politics and our policies where we don't know where, where it's coming from. And in many cases, almost certainly, we're seeing money laundered through 501c3s, charitable organizations where people can get tax deductions then send the money to 501c4s or other political action uh, groups, um, which they can do, which in in a way, I mean, basically gives a double benefit even to the people who are contributing. And in some cases, it's just the money coming from billionaires. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know who's behind it, but they've had an enormous impact on our politics and Much of that dark money, of course, going into influencing the election of judges and the selection of Supreme Court justices, as uh, Sheldon has powerfully pointed out. And now you've got Leonard Leo with $1.6 billion at least at his disposal, who will use it to influence the judicial process and the political process even more. Money rules. But you know, it raises another uh, sort of interesting quirk uh, and how much. Little things can shape a world and the world around us in profound ways. I was a part of the uh, effort with the McCain-Feingold bill to help to shape what became uh, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. It came up before the Supreme Court in McConnell versus the Federal Election Commission, and it was accepted. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was a pivotal figure. The only member of the court at the time, now there are none, who had served in elective office and had a larger understanding, but also understood the logic behind what that law did. Sandra Day O'Connor then retired from the court because her husband, John, was in the midst of Alzheimer's, and she believed that she would have to devote full time to taking care of her husband at their home as he descended further into this terrible disease pushed a little bit as well by uh, the chief justice, William Rehnquist, who wanted somebody who was more reliable on the court. She left. But very shortly thereafter, her husband didn't follow a gradual descent into deeper Alzheimer's. He fell off the cliff and she had to put him in a memory care facility. And after that, publicly and privately, many times she voiced regret that she had left the court. Once she left the court, the votes were there for Citizens United to blow up what had been done just a few years earlier in McConnell. Again, another violation of what uh, John Roberts had promised to do under oath in his confirmation hearing, taking up something that had just been decided and reversing it only because the votes had changed. But if John uh, O'Connor's arc of uh, Alzheimer's had been a little bit different, Sandra Day O'Connor would have stayed on the court. We wouldn't have had Citizens United. And we wouldn't have had very likely Shelby County. We would still have, or at least have had for a while, a Voting Rights Act uh, in place. So little things like that can make an enormous difference. And then, of course, you look at Florida uh, in 2000. If there had been no butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County, Al Gore would have become president. The Supreme Court now would be a completely different body. And the world, including on climate and so many other areas, would be a very different place. Little acts by individuals, little quirks and disease can alter the face of a country in dramatic ways. And that's what we had with the Supreme Court.
0: When you have nine jurists with that much power, you change one... Jurist, and it has a huge effect. And I spend a lot of time when I used to teach a class only on campaign finance law talking to my students about that flip from Justice O'Connor to Justice Alito and how much that matters. And you've mentioned a, a few times how that started as a small case. And just again, for those listening at home, that started as a case where there was a movie called Hillary the Movie. It was largely a hit job on then-presidential candidate for the first time, Hillary Clinton. The question was really whether that particular movie fell within the statute and whether or not uh, a corporation could fund it from its main bank account or not. And that was a fairly narrow question of statutory interpretation in my mind, During oral arguments, the case kind of blew up. And I think it was Justice Scalia who said some version of, well, wouldn't this lead to banning books because corporations also publish books? The case then came back for re argument on this much, much larger question of, is this part of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act actually unconstitutional under the First Amendment? Uh, Justice Kennedy, and I'm bothering to give this background because Justice Kennedy, who wrote the opinion, of course told us, do not worry, we have disclosure. And I'm bringing us back to disclosure because you spent some time talking to us about Senator Whitehouse and Jane Mayer and how she's focused on dark money. And to remind people, I think we hear dark money, it's bad. But as you mentioned, dark money is a problem because the whole point of disclosure is provide the public with information about those who are seeking to represent them And those who have power over them try and deter corruption and the appearance of corruption and record keeping to make sure that the rest of the act is actually um, followed. So it is not just an academic problem that we don't know where the money is coming from and that we don't know who's trying to influence our decisions. And again, here's another place I would love to spend an hour talking to you, but you did mention something and I've heard you and seen you on TV talking about this. And you mentioned the court and Chevron deference, and how the court may be soon kind of throwing things back at Congress to say, well, Congress, give more guidance to executive agencies, Congress act. And then you said, but of course, Congress is in a dysfunctional place. And that's where I want to bring us now, which is Congress is in, again, I'm not a political scientist, but a dysfunctional place. And We've had the speaker fight. We've had the problem of aid to the Ukraine and Israel. We've had the budget ceiling. We could go back to the beginning of our discussion about the Republican Party, but is there something structural about the House, or is it the party that's leading the House?
1: The structural problem is less in the House because it is all about the party. And now it's become one where our parties are like parliamentary parties. If you're in the majority, uh, even by the narrowest of margins, you're gonna be able to jam through legislation. Uh, It may not go anywhere, but you can jam it through, especially if the other party holds the Senate. The structural problem, and it's not even so much, it's not all only about structure, it's about norms and rules is in the Senate. And there, of course, uh, the problem is the filibuster, Uh, but it's as much the norms as the rule itself. The the, uh, fundamental rule on the filibuster was put in place in 1975. When they went to reform it, they uh, ostensibly lowered the threshold to stop debate and go to a vote from two thirds of those present and voting to three fifths of the entire Senate. It actually made the hurdle more difficult because if it's two thirds of those present and voting and the majority wants to get something done, You can go round the clock. And at some point, if the minority doesn't show up on the floor, you can win with a simple majority. Uh, You know, if if you only have 70 members who show up, then you are looking at uh, two thirds of the 70, uh, which is a lot less than uh, 66 senators. But the fact is, no great consequences, normal consequences flowed from that for decades until Mitch McConnell began to use it on a routine basis to block nominations for judgeships, especially to keep the slots open for a Republican president and to delay legislation by using as much floor time as he could. We have a Supreme Court that is very close to saying, no, you can't. You don't have that authority, period. That is only with Congress. That would make it impossible to govern. And it would be a fanatical thing to do. But it could happen.
0: That's why, and I know it feels less interesting sometimes to people, but questions like legal issues like the major questions doctrine and Chevron deference have such a specific and deep impact over our lives and the government's ability to function. As we, I know, have to wind down our conversation, you mentioned structural problems in the Senate. There's another structural problem that I know people listening will want me to ask about, and that, of course, is the Electoral College. And I know people will want to hear from you. What do you think is going to happen? I've heard you talk about polling. I've heard you talk about what makes you nervous about the current polls and maybe what doesn't. We have the Electoral College. It seems that it's here to stay for the foreseeable future for a whole host of reasons we could talk about. But, What do you see happening in the next few election cycles if we continue to have elections the way we have in the past?
1: So in a broader sense, I'm very fearful. Let's put Donald Trump, the move towards extremism now, a bit to the side for the moment. We're almost at a point where 70% of Americans live in only 15 states, 50% of Americans in eight states. If you think about that in the context of the Electoral College, it means that the possibility in each election that you could have the winner of the popular vote losing the presidency is increasingly enhanced. And it also means that unlike 2000 when Al Gore won the popular vote by a half a million or 2016 when Hillary Clinton won the popular vote (laughs) by three million, we could potentially have elections where somebody wins the popular vote by seven or eight or 10 million and loses the presidency. When this happened in 2000, as controversial as you could make it, 36 days to decide the election, a 5-4 Supreme Court ruling along partisan lines, the reaction of the public more broadly was somebody had to make a decision. And by 2016, We didn't get quite the same equanimity about it. Every election that follows where voters make a choice and that choice is not an accepted one is gonna chip away at the legitimacy of the political system. It gets worse because if you think of 70% of Americans living in 15 states, that means 30% of Americans will elect 70 US senators and they're not representative of the population as a whole. So we've got that set of problems. Now, I see another potential problem in 2024, which is with all of these third parties popping up and especially no labels. Let's say that no labels ends up running a candidate and they are already extraordinarily well financed. We don't know. It's dark money. I, it appears a lot of their money is coming from Republican billionaires. Uh, but let's say they put up a ticket like uh, Joe Manchin and Larry Hogan. Doesn't matter which one leads the ticket. And in a country where people are not contented with the choices available to them, they win a state. And maybe by winning that state, they deny any candidate the 270 electoral votes needed to win a majority. They send the election to the House. The House decides. Uh, a disputed uh, presidential election where no one gets a majority by state. It takes 26 votes. You can reliably say that the votes are going to go on the basis of which party has a majority in the delegation. Because Republicans have done better in many of those small states, they now have, I believe, 27. They're still very likely to have at least 26. And that would mean that Even if a Republican candidate lost the popular vote in a contested election, they could win the presidency. And that would not be an outcome I think most Americans would see as legitimate. So we've got problems that the electoral college brings us that are really troublesome. And in the short run, you're right. We're not doing anything about it, maybe even in the medium run. I've urged governors and state legislatures in many places to at least try to bring rank choice voting for presidential elections so that we could take away the distorted effect of the Ralph Nader's and Pat Buchanan's and Jill Stein's and Gary Johnson's and now the Robert Kennedy's and Cornell West's and no labels, where people at least in making a second choice would... Uh, make it far more likely that the will of the voters uh, prevailed under those circumstances. but you know we're playing Russian roulette here in effect with the legitimacy of our elections.
0: Do you have a prediction you want to share about what happens after the who is inaugurated in January of 2025
1: I will tell you I'm scared I have not been as frightened as I am now and it's partly because I see, Um, A lot of the guardrails around the fundamentals of our democracy and our legitimacy as a system eh, either uh, reduced or blown away. Donald Trump is not being coy. He's making it clear that if he wins, it will be about retribution. He will go after his enemies. He will weaponize uh, the Justice Department uh, and the legal process. He will stack the judiciary even more with judges who will do his uh, will. He has said that if they are peaceful demonstrations, he'll invoke the Insurrection Act, bring out the military and others. And no doubt there are plenty of authoritarian thugs uh, who will be happy to join him. We would see plenty of violence. Uh, I would fear for the future of our system. But not only that, you look at foreign policy, we've seen now reports that Trump has said that. He would deal with North Korea in a different way. He'd let them keep their nuclear weapons, uh, which would be a a blow to Japan, South Korea, and the Pacific. He has indicated his warmth towards uh, Kim, the vicious leader of North Korea, admiration for the authoritarian style of Xi Jinping. Uh, He loves Putin and other dictators. He would blow up NATO. He would give up Ukraine that would likely lead to Taiwan falling. The consequences are dramatic and severe. And what, I, what makes me fearful is, I see a large share of the population that either doesn't know it or doesn't care. And I see a press corps that continues by and large to treat this as a traditional political party in a traditional election, and it's both sides-ism. Now, I will say, finally, if Joe Biden wins again, it's very likely that Republicans take the Senate. Uh, there are uh, more than twice as many Democrats up than, uh, as Republicans. Some seats are, like West Virginia, you could say, are already gone. That's a switch. They can only afford one more. We have Montana, Ohio, Nevada, uh, other seats where Democrats are vulnerable, the Republicans It would take Democrats winning Texas, winning Florida, which ought to be doable, given that you're talking about Ted Cruz and Rick Scott, who are pretty awful. Um, But tribalism means that those states, instead of becoming more competitive, have tended to be less competitive. So we lose the Senate. I think we're going to see Democrats take back the House. But if you have a Republican Senate, they're going to make Joe Biden's life miserable his executive appointments, there'll be no judges. Uh, That combined with the court could make for a very difficult four years, far preferable to four years of sheer hell under Donald Trump, or four years, if it weren't him, of moving towards an Orban-style autocracy under either a Ron DeSantis or uh, Nikki Haley still viewed as a moderate by too many people who said again today that she would sign a six-week abortion ban with no exceptions. You know, we're talking about moving in a very radical direction, no matter what, if any Republican at this point gets elected in 2024, and a tough four years, uh, even if it's a Democratic administration with Joe Biden.
0: I think a lot of people agree with you. Our path is either a difficult four years or a sheer hell of a four years Um, either way dr norm ornstein i'm very grateful for you sharing your time with all of us and having this conversation with me
1: it was really my pleasure i admired you for a long time
0: thank you so much